Now then, looking to God for his help, let's uh, turn to the passage that we were looking at this morning, uh, the gospel according to Luke this time, and in chapter 23. And reading at verse 39, that's uh, page 1217 in the Church Bible, 1217, Luke 23, at verse 39. Then one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other, answering, rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God? seeing you are under the same condemnation. And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. In the morning, we saw the prayer of verse 42, where the dying thief asks the Lord to remember him when he comes in his kingdom. And tonight, with God's help, Jesus responds to that prayer, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. We're looking at the 11th hour conversion, if you like, of this man. At uh, nine o'clock in the morning, he was a, a robber of men and a blasphemer of God. But by noon, in the space of three hours, he had become a child of God. And instead of a blasphemy on his lips, there was a prayer on his lips. Short, but sincere. Remember me, Lord, when you come in your kingdom. Now, we saw his um, circumstances in the morning. It's evident, as we saw, that the man was a Jew and that he had turned away at some point in his life from the way of God's commandments. But now... He is miraculously brought at the 11th hour by the power of the Holy Spirit to recognize the man beside him. Even though he is there, uh, bloodied and battered, beyond recognition as a man, he recognizes him to be the Savior sent by God. And uh, that kind of recognition only comes to us through the power of the Holy Spirit applying the word of God to our hearts. And I've no doubt, as I said in the morning, that the word that lay dormant in his heart from his youth, all the scriptures that he had grown up with, uh, the Holy Spirit now brings to life and relates them to the man beside him and the sufferings that that man is going through. And it's in the light of that that he prays such a prayer. Remember me, when you come in your kingdom, not when you go to heaven, but when you return. In other words, the thief is saying essentially that I believe that your agony will be over. I believe that you will die. I believe that you will go to glory. But I believe as God's Messiah that you will return and you will return in a kingdom of power and glory. You will raise the dead who have died in the Lord on that day. Don't forget me. It's an amazing prayer, but it draws out of the Lord uh, an equally amazing response. And this response comes from the one who was silent all this time, the one who spoke no word of pain, reproach, or scorn. At last, he speaks He turns towards the man at his right hand and he says, first of all, assuredly, 
as you know it in the old King James, verily, truly, certainly, an expression Christ uses in the sense of mark my words, listen carefully to what I'm going to say to you. And it's no wonder that he says it here, because what he says in a way is so hard to believe, and in a way almost hard to believe for the man who's hearing it. Today, today you will be with me in paradise. The Apostle Paul tells us, and we saw these words not long ago in Ephesians 3, he tells us that God is able to do for us exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. These are wonderful words. Able to do for us exceedingly abundantly above all that we can ask or think. And here's a case in point. Christ gives this man more than he asks for and sooner than he expected it. Now, I want to just consider this dying thief again with you tonight and just look at three things. First of all, where he's going, paradise. Second, who he's going to be with, and that is with the Lord, with me, Christ says. And then third, when he gets there, which is today. Where he's going, who he'll be with, and when he will get there. Now, let's begin at the beginning. Where is he going? Well, he is going to paradise. There's a lot of uh, doubt and debate about this word, what place it actually describes and where it is, a lot of fanciful theories about various compartments in the afterlife here and there. But it's very clear with a, just a, a plain, simple reading of Scripture that paradise is just another name for heaven in the Bible. That's what it is. It's used three times in the New Testament. This is actually the first time it's used when the Lord tells the thief, that before the day is finished, he will find himself in paradise with himself. Then Paul uses the word. You'll remember when he writes his second letter to the Corinthians, he tells them of this occasion in his life. He doesn't want to boast about it. He was probably never going to speak about it. But as he says to them, you've constrained me to speak about it. He tells them how he was caught up by the Spirit of God into the third heavens, where he heard unutterable things. The third heavens is a reference to the heaven of heavens, to the heaven where God dwells. In the Jewish mode of thinking, the first heaven is the atmosphere. The second heaven is the universe in which the stars are. The third heaven is the other dimension. It is beyond that, and it's important to think of it as another dimension where God himself dwells in the fellowship of his people. And as you read that account in 2 Corinthians 12, it becomes plain that the third heavens are the same as the paradise to which he refers. He uses the two words to describe the one experience. I was caught up, he says, into paradise. I was caught up into the third heavens. The last time we find the word used is in the book of the Revelation. The church in Smyrna is given a promise that whoever overcomes, whoever perseveres and follows Christ to the end, shall partake of the tree of life which is in the midst of the paradise of God. And of course, at the very end of the book of the Revelation, the Revelation closes with a picture of a, a garden city, a new city, the New Jerusalem, uh, which, is, uh, which has a garden with a river running through it and the tree of life on either side of the river. It's not named paradise in Revelation 22, but it's obvious that it is paradise in Revelation 22. These are the only references 
in the New Testament to paradise. John describes the city first and then the garden that is a part of the city. So it's another name for heaven. But why another name? And you could say, well, it's confusing when we have more than one name for a thing. Well, that depends how you see things. It's a bit like asking, why does God have more than one name? And he does. Our Lord has different names. He also has many titles. And the reason he has many names and many titles is because he wants to convey certain aspects of his character. And they are conveyed through different names and different titles. And the same is true in connection with heaven itself. It's not just called heaven. Here it's called paradise. Because paradise is meant to emphasize a certain aspect of its glory. There's something about heaven that is best conveyed by the word paradise. So that then leads us to go back a little bit behind these things and ask, what is the word paradise? Or what does the word paradise mean? And it's very clear that the word comes from Iran. It's of Persian origin. And it meant originally a royal garden. And from that, an enclosed garden. Uh, The word paradise is used actually in the Old Testament quite often in its Hebrew form. And when it was translated later by the Jews into Greek, it appears as paradise. In the Song of Solomon, for example, when the spouse is an enclosed garden, it's the word paradise that's used. A royal garden and therefore an enclosed garden. And these Jews who translated the Old Testament, this is many years before Christ, a couple of hundred years at least before the time of Christ, the Jews translated the Old Testament from its original Hebrew into the Greek language that became known as the Septuagint Bible. And they used this word paradise to translate the Garden of Eden. And on the 13 occasions on which the Garden of Eden is referred to in Genesis 2 and 3, it is this word paradise that we find. Now, of course, as Milton famously reminds us, paradise was lost and paradise is regained. And I suppose the first worshippers who came to the Garden of Eden after it was shut, after paradise was lost, were reminded of the fact that they were excluded, but also that by faith they were readmitted. First of all, readmitted by faith, and then finally readmitted completely, spiritually and physically. Every time they came to the garden, they came to the east entrance because Eden was itself enclosed. It was on a raised plateau. When they came to the east and to the entrance, the cherubim were stationed there with the flaming sword of divine justice. That reminded them that God's presence was inside, but they were excluded. And it was the sword of justice that was excluding, excluding every worshiper from the presence of God. But of course, they were taught, Adam and Eve, and their sons and their daughters, they were taught to bring a sacrifice to the presence of the gate. And every time they would come into the presence of the cherubim and the flame of sword, they would sacrifice, so that by faith they could see themselves back in the garden, paradise restored, and back into the fellowship of God. Now, the paradise referred to in the New Testament, the paradise of God, the paradise of heaven, is described in terms that are deliberately evocative of the original paradise in the Garden of Eden. For example, Eden is a place of delight. In fact, the word Eden itself means delight. God planted a garden in Eden, and he placed the man in there. 
And we're told that in there was every tree that was pleasant to the sight, as well as good for food. It's interesting to notice how God caters for our aesthetic sense, as well as our needs. The garden was not just necessary to live on, but it was beautiful to live in, full of beauty on a holy hill, As Ezekiel tells us in chapter 28, it was full of all kinds of precious stones. All the stones, incidentally, that reappear in the garden in Revelation 22. There was, of course, a river running through it, an original river source that gushed into four great separate rivers. And in the paradise of the New Testament, we're told that a river runs through the city which emanates from the throne of God and of the Lamb. It's a place of delight. God's heaven is a place to delight in, just as the original paradise was a place to delight in. And we must never forget that in connection with heaven. It is a delightful place. And no one who goes will ever regret having gone And they will praise God for the day in which they embraced the Christ who took them there. It's a place of delight. It's also a place of provision. I've mentioned the water in the river that runs through it. It is the water of life. It's water of which we partake. And the tree as well is the tree of life with its leaves for the healing of the nations. So whatever we need In heaven, that need will be met. And it's better to think of heaven as a place that meets needs rather than a place that doesn't have needs at all. We are conscious of always having our needs met in heaven, an abundant provision. Sometimes, of course, we are pictured as sitting around a table in the heavenly garden, I'll say something more about that as I go on. But that takes me thirdly to the fact that the provision in heaven, the paradise in heaven, is a place of fellowship, just as the original garden was. We're told that God walked with Adam in the cool of the day. We're not told of that as though it was an unusual thing as though it was a once-for-all event when God came down to see what was happening, as it were, in the Garden of Eden. It's described for us as something that takes place all the time. And the expression, cool of the day itself, seems to somehow beautifully convey that. When everything is beautiful in the garden and fragrant in the garden, when it's full of rest and full of peace, the Lord God himself, in some visible tangible, perhaps even human way, walked with Adam and with Eve. And so it is in the heavenly paradise, in Revelation 22, we're told that the tabernacle of God is with men and that God dwells in their midst. It's a place of delight, of provision, and of fellowship. And last of all, it's a place of safety, of safety. Sad to say the original Eden wasn't as impregnable as that. Man, male and female, were in a state of probation. It was possible for evil to enter, and as you well know, evil entered through the serpent into Eve and through her into Adam. But the safety in the paradise of God is absolutely complete. Paradise is one of these words that disappears. Of course, those of you who follow football will be aware if you walk through the city of Glasgow that there's one place that has paradise written all over it. Uh, The only thing that is of a a paradisaical nature about it is the fact that it is enclosed. Strangely enough, whether they meant that to reflect reality or not, It's the only thing that has paradise about it. Um, It is actually enclosed, the garden of God in heaven, completely enclosed. We're told that the new city has 
with its garden has great and high walls. Strangely and almost paradoxically, we're told that the gates of the city are open by day and by night because there is no night there. Uh, And there does seem to be a kind of paradox there, and I think it is an intentional paradox because the openness of the gates indicates freedom, whereas simultaneously the great and high walls indicate safety. So these two features are somehow brought before us at the same time. But these great and high walls around the heavenly paradise of God tell us that there is no danger of being deceived ever again. There's no danger of sinning a second time. There's no danger of falling away from God. There's no probationary state in heaven. And none of us will ever fear that that might be so. However conscious we might be that others fell and that others were lost, there is no sense of insecurity and possible falling away in heaven. Nothing like that at all. Nothing that belongs to fear, nothing that belongs to sorrow, nothing that belongs to the night, nothing that belongs to darkness. These things are gone. Interestingly, we're told that God planted the Garden of Eden. Uh, It's his provision for man, and uh, he placed man there. It's an interesting thought that that the world itself was um, more pregnant rather than fruitful, except for one part which God made fruitful. And he told man, first of all, to watch that and observe it, and of course extend that garden uh, to the ends of the earth for himself and for his children. That mandate was a mandate in which man failed, but God prepared that rest for him. There was nothing he needed that wasn't there, nothing. That's the tragedy of the fall. There was nothing in his life that he needed that wasn't there. But of course, the paradise of God in heaven is also prepared by God. Come and inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And of course, before the cross, Christ tells his disciples that although I'm going, I go to prepare a place for you. Now, some would tie that remark exclusively to his work on the cross, that I am going to prepare a place for you, first of all. Now, that is certainly there, but I think there's more than that there. I've no doubt that to do full justice to the Lord's words, we need to take in another idea. I go to prepare a place for you uh, through the cross and with my own presence. In other words, what really makes heaven heaven is when the risen, exalted Lord takes his place there. And uh, he had not taken his place there in this way before. It is as the Lamb of God slain that he will take his place. And that is the ultimate preparation of heaven for all the Lord's people when Christ goes there as the risen and exalted Savior. Now, this word, paradise, is a word this man can understand. If he was a heathen, he wouldn't have a clue. And as I said in the morning, why use a word that would convey nothing to a man who needs something? People who are dying need realities. And I know that's a time when people try to to brush people off with um, soporific things, with vacuous, meaningless nonsense. But dying people who are concerned for their souls need something more than that. And the Lord wasn't going to tease him with words that he couldn't understand. Today, he says, you will be with me in paradise. What a destiny for a thief. What a destiny for someone who two or three hours ago was blaspheming his creator and blaspheming the man beside him. And I can't help, and you probably can't help too if you're thinking about these things. You can't help 
contrast this man with his previous partner in crime. Or if he wasn't a partner in crime, he was certainly a fellow criminal. What a contrast it is in life here. Just at the 11th hour, what a contrast. A contrast that carries over into death. I said that paradise is only mentioned three times in the New Testament. That is true. But I've no doubt that it's referred to on a fourth occasion, if not by name. Because it's undoubtedly a glimpse of paradise that we have in Luke chapter 16. When Christ speaks about the rich man and Lazarus. And they are in two distinct abodes. The rich man, you'll remember, died on earth, opened his eyes in Hades or in hell, and he opened his eyes in torments. Lazarus, on the other hand, is with the blessed. He is feasting at a table, and he is at Abraham's bosom. Now, you may ask, why is he with Abraham rather than with Christ? The obvious answer to that is twofold. First of all, because the Christ who speaks the narrative is the Christ who is present there speaking the narrative at the time. The second reason is because the whole narrative revolves around Abraham. What right it gives you to heaven to be a child of Abraham? What right it gives you to heaven to belong to the church, to receive the sign either of circumcision in the old covenant or baptism in the new covenant? What right it gives you to heaven to have godly forefathers, a godly mother or a godly father, or a godly Abraham in your ancestral line? Of course, the answer to that is no right at all. No right at all. Nobody can enter heaven on anyone else's coattails or on the blessedness or on the righteousness of anybody else. However godly your mother or father may have been, or your grandfather or your grandmother, you cannot enter heaven on the strength of their godliness. Hence, Christ points to the fact that Lazarus is in Abraham's bosom. In other words, Lazarus showed in his life, poor beggar though he was, he showed in his life that he was a child of Abraham, sharing Abraham's faith, knowing Abraham's God. Whereas you, the rich man who laid so much emphasis on your descent from Abraham have nothing to do with him. You're not with him in paradise when Lazarus is with him in paradise. That distinction is sharply brought into focus here in the two crosses on either side of the Lord Jesus Christ, one destined for paradise and the other destined for Hades or for hell. That brings us to the second thing. Christ tells this man where he's going, and he also tells him who he's going with or who he's going to be with. Now, there are many glorious saints in heaven. From the old covenant and under the new. I mentioned there Lazarus sitting at Abraham's bosom. Jesus tells many of his Jewish hearers that many will come from the north and the south and the east and the west, and they will sit down, he says, with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and you, the sons of the kingdom, will be cast out. Now, that kind of fellowship is a fellowship to look forward to. I've said it so often, it probably bears repeating, we will know all the saints in glory, and we will get to know all the saints in glory. That's a very large part of what glory is about. It would be a strange table sitting with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob if we never spoke to each other, if we shared bread but no words and no thoughts and no praise, a very unusual thing. There are people I think of myself that, God willing, if I get there, I look forward to sharing with them. 
But that's not what Christ says to this man. He says to him very simply that you will be with me in paradise. And however true it is that we are with others, it is supremely true that we are with him. And what's more, it's safe to say that every believer will be very much aware that they are with him and that they are all loved by him in a unique and a special way. It's not the case in heaven that the Lord's love for anybody else takes away from his love for you. There is undoubtedly a uniqueness in the bond between Christ and yourself of which you will be acutely aware in heaven. And simultaneously, you will be in a fellowship of a crowd and in the fellowship of one. Because the Lord will give you a little stone with a new name written on it, which no one knows except himself and yourself. And if that's not personal intimacy, if that's not personal knowledge, if it's not mutual knowledge, mutual fellowship and mutual delight, I don't know what is. A new stone, white stone, with a new name written on it, which nobody knows except you and him. Revelation tells us that. Friends, all of you who are Christians tonight, all of you, you're profoundly united to Christ in a spiritual bond and in a bond of affection, which is mutual. He loves you and you love him. So much so that for you to live is now Christ and to die is gain because you will be with Christ, which is far better. And heaven would be no heaven without his presence. And uh, I think you could say tonight, can you not, that to be with him is everything to you and to be parted from him is unthinkable. And this presence of Christ is something that you have a little of here. I could say that he is with you, but there's a difference, can I say, between him being with you and you being with him, if that makes sense. Let me put it this way. In this life, he is with you. In paradise, you are with him. And there is a difference. In this life, he is with you. In paradise, you are with him. Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me will be with me where I am. And um, Christ with us is constricted by this world. Us with Christ <clears throat> is not. And that is far better. So when I said at the beginning that Christ gave this man more than he asked for, I mean just that. This man asked that he would be remembered by Christ. I don't know how much he had in view with that. Christ just flings open the gates of paradise in all their fullness. And not only does he tell him that he has admittance there, but the admittance that he has is an admittance that with, that's with himself. Please don't limit being with Christ in paradise to being in the same location as Christ. That's not what it means. It means to be in proximity to Christ. You shall be together with me in paradise. And again, I can't help but contrast his fellow criminal in a few hours' time, he'll find that he has no friends at all. Uh, he, he has joined in with the multitude in cursing and blaspheming the Savior. And just in a couple of hours' time, he will have no friends 
left at all. He is rejecting the friend that sticks closer than any brother, and he will shortly find himself where the rich man found himself, having to shout across the chasm for someone to dip a finger in cold water in order to cool the tongue because he is tormented in the flame. The implication is that there's no one where he is who will perform that office for him. Is that not right? No one. However full hell might be of people, there are no friends there. You sometimes come across across the crass remark that I want to be in hell because all my friends are there. Really, that's a stupid thing to say. That's a stupid thing to say. And I don't know if you would console yourself with such a stupid thought. Do you honestly think that anybody is anybody's friend in a place where someone has to shout into heaven to get some relief from torment? Again, such a contrast between the two crosses. And then again, not only does Christ take him to a place that he didn't expect, uh, with company, that's the best company, he assures him that it'll all happen sooner than he ever expected. Today, he says, you will be with me in paradise. He says this just before noon. And uh, in three hours' time, Christ himself will be in paradise. Very shortly afterwards, the thief will be in paradise too. When the thief prayed, remember me when you come into your kingdom, he has a far-off day in view. The bones of the righteous have been buried for hundreds and thousands of years. Job, in the oldest book in the Bible, looked forward to the resurrection when his own rotting carcass of a body, as he thought of at the time, would actually be raised, and with his own flesh he would stand in God's presence, and with his own eyes he would see God. Abraham bought a parcel of land in Canaan. He owned none of it, even though it was his by inheritance. He just bought one parcel of land to function as a grave. It was his way of saying that come the resurrection, this world will be ours. It will belong to my children. It will belong to the righteous, to the seed of Christ. This earth, when it is renewed, will be populated by the reconstituted bones of God's people because they believed in the resurrection too. And they knew this resurrection would come when the Messiah would come. Remember the old illustration of the two hills which look close to each other, but they're really separated by a valley? It wasn't the first coming of the Christ that would bring the resurrection. Well, yes, that would bring a spiritual resurrection for many people. Those who are in their spiritual graves will hear the voice of the Son of God, and they will rise to newness of life, yes. It's the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ that would bring the great and general resurrection from the dead. All the Lord's people looked forward to that. When Lazarus, not the Lazarus of the parable, but when the brother of Martha and Mary died, Jesus spoke to Martha, and you remember he said to her, your brother will rise again. And what does Martha say? What was her answer to that? She said, and she said correctly, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. She knew her theology, and she had faith. I know that my brother will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. But Christ has something far better for this thief on the cross. Today, today, you will be with me in paradise. You want me to remember you in perhaps a thousand years' time. Now we know it's two thousand years' time. No, he says, I'm remembering you today. Before the day is finished, you will be where I am. There are some people who teach what's sometimes referred to as a soul sleep. 
that the believers go to sleep in their souls between now and the resurrection, and they they reawaken at the resurrection. That's based on misunderstandings of certain obscure passages in the Old Testament, and it's also based on the fact that believers are sometimes described as being asleep when they are dead in the New Testament. In fact, as a matter of interest, I think believers are always described as being asleep when they are dead in the New Testament. But the reason they're described as being asleep, as being asleep, has nothing to do with the fact that their souls are asleep, but everything to do with the fact that their bodies are still lying there, an inert, dead, in need of reanimation. Reanimation that will only come when the Lord Jesus Christ comes to reanimate them. But they're seldom, in fact, they're not referred to as dead because that word is referred to the dead dead. The Lord's people are asleep because their bodies will rise again. And that's the essence of what we call sleep normally in life. When we, somebody's, when we say somebody's asleep, we mean that in a while they're going to get up again. So that word is easily used of a body like Abraham's that is lying there in Machpelah. It's asleep because it is still united with Christ mysteriously, and it will one day be reanimated by him. Our souls are never asleep, never, but wide awake. Listen to Paul, for example. Again, when he's writing to the Corinthians in the second letter, he speaks of himself here in this life as being present in the body. And then he speaks of himself in death as being absent from the body, but present with the Lord. And he speaks of that as a thing to be looked forward to and a thing to rejoice in. But why if he's not awake? If for the last 2,000 years Paul's soul has been asleep, what sense does that really make? It's even more stark in Philippians 1.23. He says, I don't know whether I want to live or die. He doesn't say it in a negative way. In fact, we looked at this very recently, this very passage, Philippians 1. I know that to live on is needful for you, he says to the Philippian church. And, and so God has shown me that I will live because you need my life for now in God's thinking. But left to myself, he says, live or die, I don't know. I would like to live and be of benefit to you for a while. But speaking personally, he says, to depart and to be with Christ is far better. But why if you're fast asleep? Let me emphasize the point, because it's easy for you if if you think of something like a soul sleep, or, or let's say you believe in a soul sleep, which I hope you don't, you may easily come back to me and say, yes, but he's actually only saying that to be with Christ is far better. He's not saying necessarily that he's conscious and awake. Okay, then, let me put this back to you. What you're then saying is that it is better to be asleep without conscious fellowship with Christ than it is to be awake even in suffering, with conscious fellowship with Christ. Does that make any Christian sense to you? It doesn't make any whatsoever to me. The only sense in which we can really understand these words is just this very simple sense, which should be obvious to us anyway, that once we cease to breathe and live in this life, we immediately find ourselves with the Lord. Immediately. But, you know, these texts are just uh, tanks and heavy artillery when it comes to all this, because the nuclear device is this text here. Make no mistake. Today, the Lord says, you shall be with me in paradise. I've mentioned to you more than once the Jehovah's Witnesses' interpretation of this text. They put the comma after the word today. In your text here, you've got the comma after the word you. Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. The Jehovah's Witnesses punctuate the text differently. 
Assuredly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. Now, it's fair to say, certainly in our English idiom, we can sometimes speak like that. We can say sometimes perhaps with a bit of bluster or something, I'm telling you today, or today I'm telling you this or whatever. Fair enough. But to take that kind of meaning to this sentence is to destroy it absolutely. It's not just inadmissible, it's just completely unacceptable. It gives it a vapid and a vacuous meaning. I'm telling you today. What sense does that make in a conversation between two people who are just about to expire? What other day is it? On what other day could he tell him that? But it misses the point. The point of the prayer was, will you remember me when you come in kingdom glory and power? Will you remember me then? When my body has lain like the bodies of my forefathers for hundreds and thousands of years, whatever point in time you return, will you please remember my body? Remember my dust. No, the Lord says. Today. Today is the first word of the sentence, properly speaking. I'm telling you this definitely, God says, that today you'll be with me in paradise. Not I'm telling you today, but today you will be with me in paradise. You will enjoy the delights of the garden in my company. No lengthy sleep, no inactive existence, no barrenness without praise for a thousand years. But before the day is finished, your life will be completely transformed so as to be unrecognizable in a garden of delight with me. Hence, the immortal words of the Shorter Catechism. If you haven't learned it, do it. If you have difficulty learning it, read it. And read it often. Believers are at their death made perfect in holiness and do immediately pass into glory. And their bodies being still united to Christ do rest in the grave until the resurrection. So the Lord says to the poor man, I'm going first. Shortly afterwards, you will go too. And I don't think the Lord is just telling him this to communicate the truth and to give him hope, but to sustain him against a trial that was immediately to break on his head. You know, I said, was it last week? If it wasn't, it was the week before. I'm pretty sure now as I'm saying that it was last week. That it is through much tribulation that we must enter the kingdom of God. Through much tribulation that we must enter the kingdom of God. And this man is no exception. No exception. And by tribulation, I don't mean the mere fact. And by calling it a mere fact, I'm not dismissing it. I don't mean the mere fact that he's still got to endure the rest of the crucifixion. Not at all. There are things about to break loose on his own head and on the Savior's head that would make him question everything that's happened. Shortly after the Lord answers this prayer, there's a strange and gloomy and forbidding darkness that falls on the three of them. Not just on the three of them. It falls on the land as far as the eye can see. It's like the presence of hell, because it is the presence of hell. Would that not make the man question? There's also a sacred silence. The Savior will have nothing to do with anybody, because for this awful period, he is entering the abyss, and he must do it by himself. By himself, he bore our sins. By himself, he goes into the wilderness. Let no one communicate with him, and he will communicate with nobody 
in that darkness. He just hangs there. He sweated blood in Gethsemane. No one could tell because of his bloodied and battered mess whether he was sweating blood there, but believe me, every fiber of his being is caught up in that terrible struggle with the powers of hell for three solid hours. And the thing is, the thief himself would almost be one that would seek to console the Savior. But even that's not allowed. There's a holy hand of restraint on his own lips because nobody is allowed to console the Savior at this point. Not a soul, not an angel. And then again, when this three-hour period is over, it is actually broken by a cry that says, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? What a thing to hear from the lips of someone who had just said, Before the day is out, you'll be with me in paradise. But uh, God never leaves his own people without his own witness. Just as the man was brought through scriptures to recognize the Savior, so he's brought to recognize these things too. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Is that not a psalm? Is that not a psalm? And I believe with all my heart that the Savior recited the whole psalm on the cross. Certainly he shouted the first words, and certainly he shouted the last words. It is finished. A single word in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which the Lord often used, tetelestai, it is finished. But I'm sure he recited the whole. What a comfort that would be for the thief to hear this man recite the whole of Psalm 22, followed by... I thirst. They gave him vinegar to drink. Ah, yes, but didn't they give him vinegar to drink when his thirst was great? And last of all, into thine hands I commit my spirit, said the Savior. With strange triumph, he lifted up his head to say it. See how the man dies, strong, confident, conquering, and faithful. And amazingly, after that, the Roman centurion at the foot of the cross says, certainly, this man was the son of God. The next thing this thief knows is a Roman soldier coming up to him with a heavy iron bar. And he's worldly wise enough to know what that means. He knows it's going to be smashed on his legs in order to break both his legs into a thousand pieces so that his legs won't be able to bear his weight anymore and he will expire more quickly on the cross. But that fits. He knows the Savior beside him is dead. And all that remains for him is to go with him. And to have his legs smashed is just a painful moment that will introduce him into paradise just in a breath or two. And as he draws his own last breath, he is immediately welcomed by the spirit of the Savior. I mean, it's quite astonishing, really. There they are on earth, seeing these two bodies hanging there, and their souls are welcoming each other at that very time in paradise. Amazing. And as I said in the morning, in some ways you would expect it to be more fitting that the first soul to enter glory would be some great saint in the earth. We could make a case for that. Had it been a great saint in the earth, we would be quite happy for it to have been so. But there's something equally fitting about the first soul to be welcomed into glory by the Savior, to have been a man who was a robber and a blasphemer until the last hour or two of his life. Does it not magnify the grace of God, 
who came to save the chief of sinners. Let us pray. <clears throat> o oh Lord, we praise you for your willingness to seek and to save the lost and for the marvelous way in which you bring every soul into your kingdom and sustain them there and take every soul safely into glory. And uh, how wonderful to know tonight that we are in that number so that whatever befalls us, we are safe with Christ, O Lord. And we are thankful in the meantime that you are with us until the day when we can be with you. In his name we pray. Amen. Our last uh, singing is in the well-known words of Psalm 73 and verse 23. Psalm 73 and verse 23. The dying thief didn't have long to think thoughts like this, but thoughts like this were important, even for a short time. Nevertheless, continually, O Lord, I am with thee. Thou dost me hold by my right hand, and still upholdest me. Thou with thy counsel, while I live, wilt me conduct and guide, and to thy glory afterward, receive me to abide. He can say, Whom have I in the heavens high but thee, O Lord, alone? And in the earth, whom I desire besides thee, there is none. My flesh and heart doth faint and fail. And how he could say that. But God doth fail me never, for of my heart, now at last God is the strength and portion forever. These verses to the tune, Weatherby, we stand to sing. Nevertheless, continually, O Lord, I am with Thee. Thou dost me hold by my right hand, and still Again, please remember uh, those downstairs to make sure they let the, those on the gallery uh, leave first. Let's uh, remain standing to receive the blessing of God.
the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.